Okay, with that, let's go ahead and uh, turn our hearts to the Lord. Open your Bibles for um, Genesis 23. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you now. Hearts open to receive from you. Ears open to hear from you. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and teach us. Through this chapter that you have before us, Genesis 23, make it come alive for us, Lord. Make Abraham and Sarah real to us, Lord. Make your promises real to us, Lord. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, last week we looked at Genesis uh, chapter 22. And we saw in Genesis chapter 22 that it was a look from the Father's perspective of what crucifixion, uh, uh, what crucifixion was. The Holy Spirit just beginning to paint this picture of, um, in that chapter of the Father offering His only begotten Son as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we saw the pain and the suffering that Abraham went through as he offered up his son Isaac. And it gave us a, a picture, it gave us a glimpse of how the Father our Father in heaven, how he hurt deeply, knowing that the day was coming when he would have to offer his son, Jesus Christ, uh, to be nailed there on the cross, to endure the wrath of God, to endure, the, uh, not only endure, but absorb the wrath of God that was poured out upon him as he took our sins and as he bore our penalty there as a substitution for us there on the cross, paying a debt, that he didn't know because he was sinless paying the debt we couldn't pay because man all of our righteousnesses plural before God are as filthy rags there's no way to cleanse us uh, ourselves from uh, the stain of sin so he took that upon himself that we might come into a right relationship with him and now Genesis chapter 23 we continue with the events of Abraham's life and in all respects, this Genesis chapter 23, you know, it's a love story. It's a love story between Abraham and Sarah. Gives them a gives us a glimpse of their life. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So it's been roughly four years since the last chapter. Sarah's 127 years. So how old does that make Isaac? Sarah's 127. How old is Isaac? Well, she had Isaac when she was 90, remember? And so Isaac is now 37 years old. Abraham, he's 137 years old. Isaac was in his 30s. Rabbinical scholars believe he was about 33 years old when Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God. And again, it was all a picture of, of the Father, our Father in heaven, offering His only begotten Son, whom He loved, upon the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world when He was 33 years old. Verse 2, So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So Sarah dies in the land of Canaan, in Hebron, it tells us. She dies in the land of promise, in the place of fellowship. That's what Hebron means. It means fellowship or communion. She dies in the land of promise, in the place of fellowship. 
And boy, is there a sweeter place than that to close your eyes in this world, only to open your eyes in the next world, in the presence of our Lord. Sarah, she's completed her ministry. Her race is now over. And it's interesting because this is the only place in the Bible that the that the age of a woman and the death of a woman is recorded. This chapter actually makes me think, you know, how wonderful, how loving our Father in heaven is. God has given Abraham and Sarah a promise, right, that he would give them a son. And God fulfilled that promise when everything was against them. God fulfilled that promise when it was against all odds. And uh, Hebrews 11, 11 tells us by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised, promised. Sarah was a woman of faith. She believed God was that he was faithful and was able to fulfill his promises to her and to Abraham. And just like any other mother, you know, Sarah, you know, she, um, you know, enjoyed watching this little boy, Isaac, grow up. She just enjoyed seeing the milestones being met. She enjoyed seeing him grow into manhood. And, you know, as I was studying this, it just started making me think, just, just began looking at the blessings that God has given me in my life. You know, God brought Tina into my life. It was through her sharing Christ with me that I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We were married. God gave us three really exceptional kids. All of them know the Lord. All of them are walking with the Lord. And we've enjoyed our kids so much over the years. I mean, our kids are such a source of joy and uh, laughter and happiness in our lives. And my life would be considerably less in every regard had God not blessed uh, me by bringing Tina into my life and, you know, had he not blessed us with our three kids. And now we have this grandson. Boy, we just can't get enough of little Noah. And we have one on the way. Uh, God's, God blesses his people beyond measure. I mean, it's so crazy to think about what God does for his people. And I find it actually really interesting, too, in regards to Sarah. When the Bible points to a woman as an example of what a godly woman is to look like, you know, you would think that the Holy Spirit would hold up Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example. After all, I mean, she was highly favored. She was blessed among women, we read in Luke chapter 1. But the Bible doesn't hold Mary up as an as example to women. Nowhere in the Bible do we see Mary singled out in any way to be an example um, to women. The Holy Spirit, though, points to Sarah as an example of a woman to follow. Two times in the Bible, we see this encouragement to look to Sarah as an example for women. Uh, first, in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, it says, Listen to me. You who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him. 
and increased him. So the encouragement there to look to Sarah. Also, 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Sarah is the example for women that are seeking to live a godly life, seeking to, to be godly women. Sarah is the example that the Holy Spirit holds out in front of, uh, of women to, to emulate. And now God has called Sarah home after a full life. She's run a race. The ministry is over. And now it's time to go home. And again, I think this is very comforting, you know, to understand none of us are going to go home to be with the Lord until our ministries are over. And when my ministry here on earth is over, I tell you what, when my time here is done, I don't want to be here a second longer than I have to be. I want to go home with no delays. Sarah was this woman of faith that, again, God calls her home now. As believers, we're encouraged to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Titus 2.13 says. Also, Philippians 3.20.21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies then it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things in himself. We're to be looking for the soon return of our, of our Lord and Savior. And honestly, you know, I thought the rapture would have happened a long time ago. I've been a Christian now for almost 42 years, and I thought the rapture was going to happen a long time ago. And I'm not complaining because God's timing is perfect. You know, there's... Nothing left, however, on the prophetic calendar to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. It's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. I mean, it could be tonight uh, before the study is over. We're gone. That would be sweet. You know, I would love to be raptured while teaching a Bible study. You know, just like, what? Okay. Anyway, what I was saying was that would be awesome. But one day very soon, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18 says, One day very soon the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And the Greek word therefore caught up is harpazo. The Latin word is rapturo or rapio. And the English word there is rapture. There we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And frankly, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to be with the Lord. But should the Lord tarry, we're all going to face death. Death is going to be coming to all of us. But we don't really die as Christians, right? We move from this tent into a building um, from God, a house not made uh, with hands eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says, and again, I can't wait. But should the Lord tarry, 
we're all going to face death. And that should be a reminder to each one of us that this world is not our home. We're really just passing through this world on our way to someplace else, on our way to an eternal home. And if you've ever had someone close to you die, you know it can be so very hard. As um, hard as it is for us, though, death is part of this fallen world. And everyone feels a measure of sorrow when somebody close to them dies. And I think it's beneficial for us as Christians, especially in our culture, because death is something that's kind of like in the background. I mean, we don't really like to deal with death. You know, somebody dies in the hospital. They go buy a car to another place. Nobody actually really sees it. And so in our culture, death can be very hard to deal with. And I think as Christians, it's beneficial for us to think through the issues of death. So when someone close to us dies, you know, we can process it in a biblical way so that we're not blindsided by death when it comes close to us. You know, when Tina's mom died in March, just before we came up here, you know, of course there was sorrow. You know, Tina had sorrow. I had sorrow. Our kids are, are sorrowful, you know, but we also have this greater joy that's within us, knowing that she's with the Lord, knowing that she's where we want to be. I mean, it's hard to sorrow in that fact. But here, Sarah, it says that she died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Cana. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We see Abraham mourn for Sarah and weeps for her. Now, this is the first mention of weeping in the Bible. This is the first time in the Bible that we're told that a man is weeping, right? 22 previous chapters. God could have um, talked about weeping, you know, weeping at the fall of man, weeping at, you know, the death of Abel. Just there's all kinds of opportunities in the 22 previous chapters for God to just bring up this topic of tears and weeping and, and the like. But he waits, God waits for this moment to introduce this idea of weeping and tears into the Bible. And I think it's because God wants us to know that he cares. He wants us to know that he takes notice of our sorrow and our tears. Psalm 56, 8 says, you number my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle, and are, uh, are they not in your book? You know, we're never, as believers, ever going to sorrow alone. God sees your situation. He hears your cries. He takes notice of the state of your heart. He understands your pain. The other place... It's only one of two places where we're told that a, a man weeps. And the other place, you know, of course, it's Jesus Christ. When he was weeping in John 11 over the death of his good friend Lazarus, Lazarus wept, uh, sorry, Jesus wept there for a friend. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus, we're actually told. He wept when he saw the heartache you know, that was a result of the loss that the, the sisters 
Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, they were experiencing. Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion for them. You know, Jesus weeps when we weep. He hurts when we hurt. He sees the weeping of a godly man and godly woman. He sees Abraham here weeping for his wife, mourning for her. And it says, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It would appear that Abraham wasn't present when Sarah died. Maybe she died suddenly when he was away doing something. But those two things, you know, a sudden death, being away from somebody when they die, those two things just makes death of a loved one even harder. When my dad died back in 2004, um, when my dad died, we were able to be present with him. We were able to pray for him, to thank God for him as my dad was passing. And I tell you, it was such a wonderful experience to be there when he was passing, to, to be able to tell him how much he meant to me. You know, tell him I loved him. And, and uh, just to be there is just healthy, right? It was so good. But when you're not able to be with a loved one, to say goodbye to them, you know, when they die, you know, it just makes things that much harder. And we see Abraham, he comes to Sarah and he begins to mourn for her. And think about all the things these two had been through. I mean, just take a moment and imagine just all the things that were represented in their life. They'd been married a long time. If they'd been in the land of promise for 60 years, which is about the time they've been there now, about 60 years. Were they married 10 years before they came into the land of promise? Were they married 20 years before? Are they just getting done celebrating their 80th wedding anniversary together? You know, um, Sarah and Abraham, they've been through so much by this time. Sarah and Abraham probably, you know, were frequently reminiscing about the good old days. You know, you do that as you get older, right? You think back uh, about the good old days. Maybe they're reflecting, you know, maybe they would reflect on how their journey started way back when in Ur of the Chaldees when God called Abraham uh, out. And in my mind, I can see them sitting on the front porch swing, you know, just reminiscing, talking about the good old days. You know, hey, sweetie, you remember when... Uh, you know, gas was 25 cents a gallon. You remember that? You remember when a McDonald's hamburger cost like 10 cents? Remember when the Big Mac was introduced? Remember those commercials when the Big Mac was introduced? Remember how exciting it was to spend the entire day at the beach when you were a kid? You remember that? Sarah, you remember the first time we laid eyes on each other when we first met? I mean, you were so young. We were so young. Can you believe it? You know, you just imagine all the things these guys went through before her death and just how as they were growing older, they thought back over their lives. You know, Tina and I, sometimes we'll see a picture come on my computer when it goes to screensaver, right? It'll be a picture of Germany or Hungary, Italy or Austria or whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, that picture takes us back, you know, to just a precious memory where God meant us. And, you know, just as a reminder of all the things God has done for us 
over the years. His faithfulness has been so great towards us over the years. And I know that you know what I'm talking about. I know that you have those times too. And the years and the events that God has carried Abraham and Sarah through, their lives relived in Abraham's memory uh, as he thinks of her weeping for her, just, just reminiscing of the times that they've had together. So tender. Abraham thinking maybe of dragging Sarah away from her home, you know, telling her that the one true and living God had told him to leave this place, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that he'll show him. You know, and Sarah never complained. Sarah lived in a tent. She gave up, you know, the dream of all women. I think all women have the same dream of, and that's to have their own house to have that security. And she gave it up to follow Abraham. Abraham would probably remember how Sarah listened to all the things he told her about the promises that God gave him, you know, how they would have a child. And then at 90, you know, they have a, uh, a child. She conceives and bears a son to Abraham. How God told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And Abraham probably remembers how God told Sarah. He probably remembers breaking the news to Sarah that she would be a mother of many nations and kings would come from her. They were all precious promises. And you know, Abraham was also remembering uh, the times he had lied. You know, he probably remembers those times with regret when he had lied about uh, Sarah and asked her to be, uh, tell others that, she was his sister. And you know, he, he was embarrassed by those memories, I'm sure, as any of us would be. He remembered how Sarah laughed at the tent when God told her that she would have a child, you know, and, and she laughed. And, you know, what we got to understand from all of this is Abraham and Sarah, they were real people. They had real problems. And God saw them through all of it. Now she's died, and now Abraham is weeping and mourning for her. It was a lot of years that they were together. And if you think about it, what they began, uh, but they became to each other, what they meant to each other after all those years of marriage. You know, when you, when you have a loved one who's so wonderful, you know what? It really makes that loss so much harder. When we lose someone so very close, even though that loss is so great because of what they meant to us, because they were so wonderful, right? Such a blessing in our lives. It should also make us so very thankful because, you know, of the way God used them to enrich our lives because they were so great. We have all the more reason to be thankful to God, bringing them into our lives. And, you know, death at that point can become a two-edged sword. On one hand, it brings a great amount of sorrow into our life. And yet, on the same time, you know, there's a reason for great rejoicing in the Lord because it's a reminder of what God has done for us. And I don't know what it's like to lose a spouse. You know, my prayer, and it sounds kind of weird, uh, just telling you the truth, my prayer is that Tina would die before me. You know, my prayer is that I would be holding Tina, you know, and telling her how much I love her. 
and that I would be the last thing that she sees in this world before she opens her eyes in eternity and sees the face of our Savior. I mean, that's my prayer. And in this passage, what we see is it's not unspiritual. It's not ungodly. It's not a lack of faith at all. Right? When we begin to weep and mourn for our loved ones who've gone home to be with the Lord before us, you know, it's, it's nothing wrong to weep and mourn for loved ones. You know, that shows people how very close they were to us. You know, that, that the loss of their companionship is just deeply felt in our lives. You know, it's a reminder to us that death is an enemy. That sorrow that we feel, it's a reminder that death is an enemy and that it was through sin that death was brought into the human condition. Abraham weeps and mourns for Sarah. And he's a great man of faith. He's called the friend of God. And Sarah is his princess. And she had been with Abraham through thick and thin. It's, it's in no way a lack of faith to sorrow or to mourn for the loss of a loved one in our lives as believers. But... Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, he says that, you know, we do not sorrow for our loved ones that have died as others do, having no hope, right? We have hope. When we experience the sorrow that comes from losing a loved one, we sorrow, but with the confidence that one day we'll see them again. One day we'll be reunited with those loved ones that have died in the Lord and gone on before us. And we see that in 2 Samuel 12, 30, uh, 23. We'll be reunited with them to praise the Lord for eternity with them before his throne. One thing about this couple even as great as the loss uh, Sarah was to Abraham, the writer to the uh, Hebrews tells us that they waited and looked in anticipation for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11.10. All the way through their lives, even with all their wealth, Abraham and Sarah recognized this world is not what they were living for. This is not the end of the journey. This is not all that there is to life. The end of life for the believer is in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And Sarah followed Abraham and shared that hope of heaven with Abraham. She was a great woman of faith, not settling down in this world, but allowing Abraham, uh, but following Abraham to the end of her life. And verse 3 says, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, So Abraham is grieving, but now he stands up to bury uh, Sarah. And even today, the custom of the Jews and the Arabs in, in that part of the world is to bury their dead the same day they die. And what we see here is just tremendous humility in the life of Abraham because all the land has been given to him, but he still goes to speak to the sons of Heth. Verse 4, he says, 
I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham gives them his testimony. He tells his testimony to the sons of Heth. He says, I'm a stranger and a pilgrim in the land. He says, I'm on a journey. This, this, this world is not my home. You know, it's the same testimony that we have. It's the same journey that we're on. This world is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. And verse 5 says, And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. Now the sons of Heth, they had tremendous respect for Abraham addressing him as Lord. They say, You are a mighty prince among us. Abraham was a great and mighty man, very respectable. And it's so interesting because the Hebrew here is, You are a prince of God. That's what the Hebrew says. You are a prince of God among us. Lot thought getting in among the people, living next door to them, becoming one of them, he thought that that was the way to witness to them. But Abraham knew being obedient to God and staying separate from um, the world was the way to have an effective testimony before those who are in the world. You know, if you want to make an impact in this world, you want your life to count for eternity and, and make a, just a dramatic impact in the lives of the people around you, well, you know what you should do is live for Jesus totally and completely. You know, if you want to reach this world, live for eternity. Make heaven your focus and priority. People will see how different you are. They'll, they'll recognize that there's a clear difference between you and everybody else in the world. And they'll want to know why you're that way. How that happened. What's, what's the difference in you? And, uh, you know, it's a great testimony living for Jesus and living for eternity. Here, the sons of Heth, they look at Abraham and said, you know, he's, here's a guy whose God is powerful. Here's a God... Here's a guy that has a God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's God gave him a son when his wife was 90 years old, and they recognize all of this. You know, God has given Abraham tremendous, amazing victories. And after seeing all of that done for Abraham, they said, Abraham, you're a prince of God. Abraham let his life be a testimony to these people, but he didn't only let his life be a testimony. He, he lived out a life for the Lord, but he also, you know, spoke of the Lord and his great love for him. The sons of Heth continued and said, bury your dead in the choices of our burial places. None of us with, will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. In essence, they said, you know, you choose the cave. It doesn't matter whose property it's on. Um, you just let us know where you want to bury your dead in that land. We're giving it to you. But we'll find out that they don't really actually mean that, that they're going to give it to Abraham. This is just how a deal was struck in the Middle East. You know, the seller of the property or the seller of some item that you were interested in, um, they would always initially offer to give it to the buyer. Verse 7, Then Abraham stood up, bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. Again, Abraham is so humble. He bows himself to the people of the land and acknowledges their grace and hospitality to him. And he spoke to them, saying, 
If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. You know, it's so great to witness this ritual politeness, right, of these negotiations. Abraham asked for some uh, land to bury Sarah, and they say, hey, you name the spot, you want to bury her, we're going to give it to you. And Abraham then says, well then, if it's your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, you know, it's just refreshing to see this respect and courtesy between these two parties. You know, it's something that, that you don't really see a lot uh, in this day and age, two people negotiating with just respect and courtesy and humility. Abraham says, if it's your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give the cave of Machpelah, Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, let him give it to me at the full price as property for the burial place among you. Abraham says, hey, I'd like to have that cave over there, the uh, cave of Machpelah. And, uh, you know, I'm willing to pay the full price. Verse 10, now Ephraim, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, and it's just beautiful to me, you know, you just see this respect that's going on. I mean, Ephron, he's right there in the presence of Abraham when he asked the sons of Heth to speak to Ephron on his behalf. But out of respect, Abraham does not address him directly, right? Um, at the onset of this conversation, just, just tremendous respect. And all of this is going on in the gate of the city. The gate of the city is where all the legal business occurred. And you'll remember uh, Lot. He was a judge of the city of Sodom, and he was sat in the gate of the city of Sodom. Verse 11, Now, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field of the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Ephron is, is honoring Abraham now in his loss. He's trying to comfort Abraham by offering to give him the field uh, and the cave that Abraham desired. But they both know that Ephron is not actually going to give Abraham the field. It's just polite negotiation. Ephron is saying, you know, I'll just give you the field so you can go bury your dead. Don't worry about buying it. It's yours. But if at this point, Abraham just said, great, thanks a lot, buddy, you know, and just walked away, that would be very disrespectful. Ephron would get very angry. It would be just a great offense. You know, there's this whole dance, you know, that you're expected to go through in these kind of things in this part of the world. Abraham, verse 12, bowed himself down before the people of the land. You know, the grace that Ephron is showing to Abraham, it's not, you know, missed. It's not uh, lost on Abraham. He recognizes this grace that he's showing to Abraham in his vulnerability. So he bows and he acknowledges that grace that's offered to him. Again, what an example of humility. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I'll bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen. 
The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? So bury your dead. You know, Ephron gets the asking price into the conversation. You know, if, if he really wanted to give the land to Abraham, he wouldn't have mentioned I wouldn't have brought up a price at all. This, this way of negotiating the price is um, typical in the ancient and modern practices. It's typical of ancient modern practices in this culture, right? As a gesture of kindness, the selling party would offer uh, to give the item in question to the buyer. You know, the buyer would then insist on paying a price. Then, when the buyer refused and insisted on paying for it, the seller would suggest a price, which, you know, uh, was way out of, you know, out of bounds. It was way too much than what the thing was worth, you know. He would claim that price was, though, modest, right? And everybody, both parties, would understand that that was the beginning point of their negotiation. They would begin to bargain from that point, and come to an agreement. And I love it. You go to Jerusalem, you go to some other place where it's common to haggle and to barter for things. You know, I just, I just love how it's done. You know, you ask somebody, you know, how much is something? And they give you a price. And you're like, what? How much? Oh, for you, my friend. And then they give you a different price, you know? And then you, you say, how much? You know, I just saw it down a couple rows, a couple vendors down the street, and it was a lot less. Because we are such good friends. I remember in um, Jordan, you know, the men would say, Habibi, Habibi, because we are such good friends. Habibi, I give it to you for, and they name a price. And even at that price, I'm losing money, but it doesn't matter. For you, it's okay. And then you agree on the price, and then you have tea. It's awesome. You know, I love it. I'm not really good at haggling or, or bartering like that. But, you know, it's, it's fun to just be part of it. Some think, though, that Ephron is really trying to take advantage of Abraham here. And they think that because Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, he was asked by the Lord to redeem a piece, a piece of property that he had the right of redemption on. And when he, Jeremiah redeemed that property, he only paid 17 shekels for the land. Here, Ephron is, is uh, asking for 400 shekels. Either this is a way better, a, a much bigger piece of property than what Jeremiah redeemed, or uh, Ephron is taking advantage of Abraham here by starting off really, really high. Um, Either way, Abraham, he's not going to barter with Ephron. He isn't looking to dishonor his wife with a negotiation. He's just going to honor the price. And I think, again, I think we can learn a lot here from Abraham. In negotiations, we could say Abraham's business practice was one uh, of respect. It was one of courtesy. It was one of fairness. Sometimes we see people who have some I don't know, religious rank. There's some, you know, famous people within the church that you might say, you know, they assume that they have the right to be rude and, and abrasive to people in their dealings with others. And they, they think that they have some right to expect special treatment from other people, maybe even, you know, to attempt to take advantage of that other people because of who they are, uh, religiously speaking. But it's not a good 
good witness when you deal with unbelievers in that way. As believers, we need to do business. We need to, in everything that we do, we need to be mindful of our witness to bring glory to the Lord. Verse 16, and Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of, of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Ephron knew that what he was asking from Abraham and he expected Abraham to counter. But um, Abraham just weighs out the silver. Now you need to understand Abraham doesn't give Ephron uh, 400 shekels you know, in the form of some type of coinage. Uh, shekel is a measurement of weight. So he weighs out 400 shekels worth of silver. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. So it says, uh, before all who went in the gate of the city, again, it's a reference to the men of the city. It's the leaders that are within the gate, and they're a witness of this transaction. There's a legal document. It's a deed that is witnessed by these men of the city. And that's what's happening here. Verse 19. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. You know, when you go to Israel today, there are a lot of, you know, traditional sites that are very questionable, you know, like the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, uh, among a whole lot of reasons why that's not where Jesus was buried. One of them, I think, which is very strong, is I don't think Jews would allow someone who had been crucified to come back within the city walls to be buried. I mean, those bodies were generally thrown into the garbage dump and just burned. You know, it's far more likely when you go uh, to Gordon's garden tomb and see the tomb that's there. That's far more likely to be where Jesus was buried. But that being said, this burial place of Sarah spoken of here is probably one of the more legitimate sites uh, there in Israel. It's a little difficult to get to since it's in Hebron and uh, that's Palestinian controlled territory controlled by the Palestinian Authority. So it's a little bit harder to get there. And there's a mosque that's built right over that site. You know, it's interesting because this is the only piece of property that Abraham purchased in the land of Canaan. He purchased a burial place for his wife and ultimately he was buried there um, Isaac later was buried there, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah. They were also buried there in the same spot. And the reason why Abraham doesn't buy any more of the land is because the land of Cana was given to him and his descendants by God. I mean, it was all his. But in this time of grief, it just wasn't worth arguing over. Now, Hebron, uh, it's always when you're given a... Um, a location where something happened, it's worth looking in the back of your Bibles to find out where it is. Hebron's about 20 miles south, slightly southwest of Jerusalem. Hebrews 
11.13 says that Abraham and others all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Sarah and Abraham, they died and they were buried and they were waiting the resurrection so that they can take possession of the land that God has promised to give them. Abraham and Sarah knew that one day it would all be theirs because the father um, would offer his son back there on Mount Moriah, what we saw last week. God's promises to us gives us hope well beyond the grave. His promises, you know, they can't be extinguished in this life. His promises to us will be fully realized when we see our Savior face to face. And we should note that at the end of Sarah's ministry here on earth, she goes, she dies, she goes to Abraham's bosom, the place of paradise called Abraham's bosom, and there she waits for the coming Messiah. And just after Jesus dies on the cross, right, before he rose again, he went into the grave uh, to those who were in Abraham's bosom, and then from there he ascended on high, leading them that were there in Abraham's bosom into heaven. And even though this chapter, of course, is all about Sarah and her death, you know, I think we can look at Abraham as a type of the father in this chapter also. You know, the grief that he experienced, the, the sorrow that he experienced, the, the death of a loved one. For the unsaved, God is grieved because he offered up his son, the son whom he, he loved, only to be rejected. And that brings grief to the father's heart. Ezekiel 33, 11, God tells Ezekiel to speak to the people, to plead with them on his behalf, saying, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that the wicked um, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. I mean, God is just pleading with those that don't know the Savior just to turn. Why would you die? Why would you insist upon this? You know, the insistence on rejecting um, God's love, the, the insistence on their rejection of his free gift of salvation is extremely grievous to God the Father because he has a love for all men, a deep-seated love for his creation. God's desire is for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. That's what uh, 1 Timothy 2.4 says. Death is an enemy to those who do not know Jesus. And Jesus died, it says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, it says that Jesus died that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subjected to bondage. I mean, it's this fear of death that keeps men from, from really living their life and living it the way God intended it right? To live for him. For the unsaved, when death comes to them, their hope of ever experiencing anything other than the wrath of God, the wrath of an angry God, is gone forever. For those who are saved, though, death is nearly a doorway from this life into the eternal blessings of God. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross 
has gained victory over death in the life of the believer. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The death of the saints is a cause for rejoicing in heaven. Now, I think that, like I said before, death can be a two-edged sword. I think that death can be a two-edged sword, so to speak, um, for God also. God grieves over the stubbornness of the unsaved, insisting that he judge their sins when he would rather offer them salvation. He would rather extend mercy and grace instead of judgment. But he rejoices over the death of his saints because he longs to commune with us face to face. You know, I think really, I think what's going to happen is when we go to heaven and we see, you know, the Lord, we look him in his eyes and we say, you know, Jesus, I've waited so long for this moment. I honestly believe in my heart that we're going to hear Jesus at that very moment look into our eyes and hear him say, you know, I've longed for this moment for a long time too. And I just think it's so wonderful. I'm so thankful that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'm on my way to heaven. I'm going to heaven. That's where my home is. This world is not our home, right? We're pilgrims and strangers here in the world. Let's not live our life in such a way where we are placing and putting down roots here on earth. I want to live my life with no regrets, Right? I want to be running for Jesus. I want to be spent for the kingdom. I want to bring glory to his name. And then afterwards, be received into heaven. Amen? I mean, that's what we're living for, guys. If you're not a believer here, what, if you're not a believer today, what are you waiting for? I mean, honestly, what's holding you back? God has demonstrated his love for you by sending his son and taking your sin and bearing your penalty there on the cross. Why would you insist on sinning against God's love, rejecting the free gift of salvation? Why not give in to his love? Why not just let God love you with an everlasting, unconditional love? He's not asking you to give up anything. What he wants is just for you to let him love you. You know, he just wants you to come to him as you are. Just come. He'll receive you just as you are. He loves you enough not to let you remain in that state, but he wants you just to come to receive just his love, to receive his forgiveness, to receive, you know, salvation. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to turn from your sins. He wants to repent. He wants you to repent and Turn from your sins and turn to him. Place your faith in him. You know, he wants you to, your heart to break over those things that you've done that are wrong. He wants, he wants to then bring healing to your heart as he gives forgiveness to you. What are you waiting for? Why don't you just bow your knee right now and ask God for forgiveness? Ask him to come into your life and make you a new creation. Tell him how you believe that Christ died for your sins. And he rose again on that third day and ask him for just the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to run for him and to live for him. If you'll pray that prayer, he'll meet you and he'll forgive you and he'll save you. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you. Lord, just for this chapter, Lord, just 
the things that it brings out, Lord, death is a reality in life. It sounds almost corny to say death is a part of life. Yet for the believer, it's not a fearful part, Lord, because it's, it's what ushers us into your presence. Should you tarry, Lord? We, we cry, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we look with eager anticipation for the rapture of your bride. But Lord, should you tarry? We're all going to walk through that porthole of death. And, and Lord, I'm so thankful for us as believers. That's not a fearful thing. We'll be reunited with loved ones that have gone on ahead of us. Lord, but for those maybe that don't know you, Lord, that death is a fearful thing. Maybe those that aren't living for you where death is a fearful thing. And Lord, I just pray that you minister to, to those right now. Lord, either uh, a fresh confession of their need for you or a completely new confession of their need for you, Lord. Would you just minister to hearts of people right now, Lord? Father God, I love you for the blessings that you bring into our life, Lord. The experiences that you allow us to, to be part of, Lord. Living for you and then everyday experiences of just living in this world with you as our Savior, our, our wives, our husbands, our kids, our grandkids, Lord. Thank you for your many blessings on our life, Lord Jesus. We give you praise and glory. Lord, draw us closer to yourself. Help us to focus on eternity and live for you with nothing held back, Lord. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you've uh, given your heart to Christ and, and uh, you'd like to talk, I'd love to talk to you, answer any questions you may have, get a Bible in your hand, and just help you along with this newfound walk with uh, Jesus Christ as your Savior. Get a hold of me at the office and we'll talk, okay?